Let's hear God's word. Mark chapter 15, beginning with verse 25. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend down from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 32. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we consider again the sufferings of our Savior, his crucifixion, his humiliation, the ridicule that he endured, we pray that you would help us not to be swept along by the opinion of the multitude. May we not be like those who demand to see in order to believe, but may we recognize in his humiliation his true glory. May we see in his sufferings the fulfillment of Scripture, and may we recognize in this mangled and disgraced and unattractive form our Savior, the King of glory. May we love him, Lord. May we be willing to stand with him in whatever disgrace that may entail. In his name we pray. Amen. The last time we were in the Gospel of Mark, we considered that in describing the crucifixion, Mark really doesn't focus attention on the physical sufferings of it, though those were certainly significant and bad, But Mark draws attention especially to the disgrace, to the shame, to the humiliation of it. And one of the ways he does that is by emphasizing how all these different groups of people make fun of the Lord Jesus. The Roman soldiers made fun of him by having this mock coronation ceremony where they hailed him as king of the Jews. And then in the portion that we've read today, you can see the disgrace that is heaped upon him. Those who pass by throw his words in his face. The leaders of Israel say that in spite of the fact that he saved others, he couldn't save himself. They challenge him to do something so that they can believe him. In other words, calling him out as a disgraced liar. And even people who were in the same boat people who were nailed up on crosses like his next to him, even they mocked him. In other words, the Lord Jesus is nailed up in company with others, but even the people who are nailed up with him think they're better off than he is. They think they're less disgraced than he is, and they pile on in ridiculing, in humiliating him. Now, there's basically a couple of points It's the contrast between these two points that gives the sting or the point to the humiliation. One is what Jesus had said and done previously. And so you'll notice they 
throw his words in their face. He had said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, they're saying, look at where you are now. You said you were going to rebuild the temple in three days, and you can't even come down from the cross. Or the chief priests and scribes say, well, he saved others, and they're thinking about how he healed people. They're thinking about how he fed people. They're thinking about how he delivered people from the bondage of demonic oppression. But look at him now. There's nothing he can do about it. So there's this contrast between what Jesus said and did and where he is now. And that's brought out even in the title that's put over him, the King of the Jews. Or, And that reflects a Roman perspective, right? They thought of these people as Jews, and so they called Jesus the King of the Jews. When it's actual Jewish people speaking, they call him the King of Israel. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, verse 32, descend now from the cross. They think of themselves as Israelites in the first instance. So there's this contrast between what Jesus had given to understand about himself, and we understand here that the title King of Israel, King of the Jews, that wasn't exactly what Jesus went about saying. When people accused him or asked him if he were king, of course he couldn't deny it, and he had acted like a true king, like a good king in providing for the people, for instance, when he fed the 5,000, in protecting the people when he healed their diseases, in delivering the people from bondage when he cast out demons. In all those ways, Jesus had acted like a true king, like a good king, the best king. But Jesus didn't run around saying, I'm the king, I'm the king, I'm the king. He displayed that reality by his actions, but it was a title that was easy to misunderstand And it wasn't the right moment to assert that particular claim. So this is what they're extrapolating. They're attributing this title to him. Now, from a Roman point of view, I imagine that there was also some humiliation of the Jewish people intended in this. Look at your king. This is what we did to him. Would anyone else like to claim to be a king? There's a warning there. There's a threat. But as I say, there's also that element of this is your king. I hope you're happy. What kind of a wonderful king do you have? He's helplessly nailed up on a cross. So that's the point of the humiliation here, the contrast between what Jesus said and did and where he is. And Mark brings that out in a few different ways. First of all, there's just this reality that he says, it was the third hour and they crucified him. Now, just in that statement, they crucified him. Humiliation is already brought out because the point of crucifixion was disgrace. There are other ways to kill people. The Romans had lots of different ways to kill people. They were very creative. They really stretched their artistic wings when it came to devising horrible ways to torture and kill people. What was the point of crucifixion? Well, the point of crucifixion was especially the humiliation. This was something that was only done to slaves and rebels. It meant you were the lowest of the low. And clearly within that society, it worked. Everybody who's passing by, except for a few women and a couple of men that we read about in other gospels, were mocking him, were joining in 
It worked to disgrace somebody like that. Everybody felt, yes, you were in fact disgraced. The humiliation was evident. But it's not just that he's crucified, it's the company in which he's crucified. With him, they also crucified two robbers, it says. Now, the word for robbers there sometimes just means like a highway robber, somebody who holds people up on the road and takes their money. But it's also often used in a context of a revolutionary. You remember Barabbas was a robber who had committed insurrection. And in the insurrection, in the rebellion against Rome, he had also been guilty of murder or manslaughter. Well, that's the company that Jesus is in. And you think about how that relates to the title, the king of the Jews. Well, Rome had not authorized the Jews to have a king. So any such pretension was rebellion against Rome, according to their lights at any rate. So Jesus is crucified in bad company. The other people are not of good moral character. They are enemies of the state. And when he's crucified among them, when he's crucified in the middle of them, when a title is put over his head, and when those other guys join in the general mockery, it's clear that he's seen as the worst of them all. How upside down. How absolutely inverted are the judgments of this world? Here was the only good man ever to live. Here was the only person who fulfilled all righteousness, and he was condemned as the worst. He was degraded as the vilest, the most disgusting of human beings. This is a large part of the offense of the cross. People stumble over a savior who is treated in this way. Because if he were mighty to save, if he were who he says he is, why wouldn't he be in better shape? But that's the point of all of this, is by heightening the contrast between what he said and what he did and where he is now, they're attempting to humiliate and degrade him by exposing him. Well, then That is added to, that is brought out more clearly by the words that people use. He's numbered with the transgressors in fulfillment of Scripture to give everybody the idea he is a transgressor. These are the, this is the thing that made him worthy of this condemnation, of this humiliation, of this mistreatment. Why does he deserve to be spit on and all the rest of it? because of what he claimed. So he's numbered, he's reckoned among the transgressors, and the people passing by then make free to throw his words in his face, as we've seen. You destroy the temple in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. The implication is you can't do it. You're helpless. There's nothing you can do. We're stronger than you are. We got you. Now what happens to all your bold claims? or the chief priests and scribes. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let him descend that we may see and believe. They're still challenging him. They're still saying, look, if you would actually do something worthy of it, we would still believe you. But of course, in so doing, they invert the order, don't they? They say, see, show us, let us see, and then believe. But that's not how that works. 
You may remember the Lord Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We are to believe based on what we hear from God's word. This demonstrates unbelief. You say, I won't believe unless my conditions are met. And this is where mockery of Christ arises from. It arises from unbelief. They can give him the title, the Christ, but they don't mean it. They can call him the king of Israel, but it's just to pour salt in his wounds, metaphorically speaking. It's just to make it worse so that he suffers more deeply. Well, in all of this, you see a pattern of ironic contrasts. Here is the king, but he's helpless on a cross. Here is the holy, the righteous, the innocent one, but he's nailed up with those who objectively are criminals, are transgressors. Here is the mighty one, but even Paul says it, he was crucified through weakness. The mighty one is very weak right here. Here is the Christ, the promised deliverer, but he can't come down from the cross. Here's a humiliated criminal and his compatriots, his fellows, the ones who are like him, yeah, they still think they're better than him. They make fun of him too. Is there any deeper depth of degradation, of shame, to which Christ could be put? Well, the answer is there is. Yes, that's still coming up in the next passage. But humanly speaking, they have done all that they can do to show him up. Now, why does Mark tell us all of this? What is the point in revealing this? If Mark wants people to believe in Jesus, why does he explain that Jesus was crucified with transgressors, cruelly mocked, and did nothing about it? Just hung there, helpless, between heaven and earth. In terms of propaganda, in terms of advertising, in terms of drawing people to Christ, that does not seem like a good marketing strategy, does it? I'm going to call upon you to follow somebody who couldn't protect himself, who was mistreated and degraded. I want you to associate with a condemned criminal, the lowest of the low, who was treated with as much disdain and contempt as any human being can be. How many people at this point are saying, sign me up, that sounds good. Why does Mark do that? Well, he does it because it's true, obviously. That's, you can't leave that part out of consideration. These things happen. This is how Christ was treated. And so Mark does that. He tells the truth, and it shows us, on the one hand, that we can never adjust the message in order to be appealing to people. We want people to hear. We want people to come in. We want people to fill these pews and join the church and all of those other things. But what are we not allowed to do in order to secure that? Well, we are not allowed to tamper with the truth. 
The truth does offend. The truth does cut deep. The truth alienates many people. People won't come into the light. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So the truth of the law offends people. You tell people this is right and wrong. This is what God requires. Well, some of them are alienated. Some of them are driven away by that. You tell people that the way of salvation involves them contributing nothing. You tell them that they're so lost in sin. You tell them that they're so far gone that there is no way for them to recover themselves. Well, that alienates people. You tell them that they need to be associated with a disgraced, a humiliated, a contemptible, from the world's point of view, Savior. That also alienates people. But what part of that can we leave out? What part of that can we change? What part of that can we adjust? Mark shows us by his example that we have no right to tamper with the truth. We have no right to trim it. We have no right to reduce it. We have no right to compress it or squeeze it or distort it in order to draw people in, in order to get people to participate in some way, shape, or form. And of course, if we mess with the truth, if we change the message in order to draw people in, ultimately, what are we drawing them to? Well, we've stopped drawing them to Christ. We've stopped pointing them to Jesus. We're pointing them to something at least subtly different at that point. So one of the big takeaways from this passage, one of the big takeaways of the bluntness with, with, which, with which Mark says they crucified him is just that we have no right to adjust the message because people find it unpalatable. The message is the message. God has given it to us. We're responsible for passing it on. We're not responsible for making people like it. And the reality is that not everybody will like it. Obviously, people didn't like the message when Jesus himself gave it, or they wouldn't have treated him this way. So what are we going to do? Well, hopefully we will never diminish the gospel. Hopefully we will not change any part of the truth in order to bring people in. But that's not the only lesson, of course, from this. Why does Mark do this? Well, Mark does it because it's true. Mark also does it as an indictment of the world. What could condemn the whole outlook of the Roman Empire? What could condemn the outlook of the Jewish religious leaders more thoroughly than this? He was the Christ. He was the King of Israel. And yet this is how they treated him. They have become so blinded, so lost in sin that they don't recognize the Savior when he's right in front of them. The scriptures are being fulfilled in his humiliation. And they pile on the humiliation. They've forgotten. They don't know the scriptures. Of course, the scribes would have prided themselves on their detail, their accurate knowledge of the scriptures. And they don't see what's happening when it's being carried out right in front of their faces with a complete lack of self-awareness in the light of Scripture. They join the wrong side. They reject their only hope. The son of David came and was worse treated than David at his most persecuted. That shows you 
we are not going to find salvation. We are not going to find deliverance. We are not going to find the peace, the stability, the righteousness that on some level we all crave through this world. The Jewish religion was powerless to bring that about. They worked for the opposite. The Roman Empire, with all of its famous law and order, was helpless to bring it about. The Roman Empire was on the wrong side. So where are you going to get peace and joy and righteousness? Where are you going to get the conditions of a happy and blessed life? It's not going to be from human religion. It's not going to be from a human empire. It's not going to be through government. It's not going to be through social programs. Where is it going to come from? When you have a world that is standing on its head, do you really expect sanity and improvement from it? We have to stop looking to the world for those things. This is what the world did with the true and righteous Savior and Deliverer. So why does Mark tell us all these things? Why does Mark emphasize the humiliation, the degradation of Christ? Because it really happened, because it's true, because it indicts the world, and because it shows. For those who don't insist on seeing and believing, for those who believe, to them it shows, it enables them to see that here, is the true glory of Christ. If you would turn back to the Old Testament, if you would read it in the light of Christ, what would you find? You would find that many are the afflictions of the righteous. The fact that he's mistreated in this way doesn't mean he's unrighteous. He's numbered with the transgressors, but not because he is a transgressor. If you went to the book of Isaiah, you would find that the servant of the Lord suffers, that his countenance, his face is marred more than that of any man. You would find that he was stricken, that he was smitten, that he was afflicted, that everybody, including even the people of God, thought that he was contemptible. They thought that this expressed God's judgment on him that he had not been what he ought to be. And so the scripture was fulfilled. The Lord Jesus, the King of Israel, the Christ, as he's truly, although sarcastically called in this passage, how does he accomplish the deliverance? He saved others. Well, he had done some things that pointed to his work of salvation. But he hadn't finished saving them yet. Why did he not come down from the cross to save himself? Because he was up there for the sake of sinners. He was up there for the transgressors who deserved to be there. He underwent this humiliation, all of this mistreatment. He endured even the mocking that was happening in that moment in pursuit of true salvation, of ultimate salvation, of complete salvation for us. This is what we have deserved 
with our sin. This is how, in strict justice, we ought to be treated. We are transgressors. But it's not how we're treated. Because Jesus was there instead. So Mark tells us this. And he tells us this in this blunt way, in this way that underlines the humiliation, because Mark is not ashamed of it. Mark doesn't have to tamper with the truth to make it more palatable to others, because Mark has seen the glory of Christ in his humiliation. Was Christ humiliated in social terms? He absolutely was. Nobody could have looked at that scene on the cross and thought that Christ was being honored in terms of this world. But what is true glory? Where do you really see somebody who deserves praise and respect? Is it not when you see somebody who is willing to go through with the very hardest things for the sake of love? Is it not when you see somebody who doesn't shrink back, who doesn't turn aside from keeping his promises no matter what the cost? Is it not when you see the Lord Jesus humiliated and numbered with the transgressors for you? Why would we be ashamed of Jesus? The only reason to be ashamed of him is if you adopt the values of this world which are upside down and distorted and perverse. For us, as for Mark, we ought to see this. Yes, as the humiliation of Christ. Yes, as part of his suffering. Absolutely. But in the suffering, you see the glory. Because why did he go through with this? Why did he accept to be treated in this way? Well, for love. To obey his father. To keep the word of God, and for the love of his people. Well, that's genuine nobility. That's true honor. We should be proud of the sufferings of our Savior. We shouldn't be proud of the world that imposed them. Don't, I'm not saying that. But we should be proud of the Savior who underwent them. And so we should not hesitate to make this message fully known, we should not hesitate to underline the sufferings, the humiliation of Christ. We should not hesitate to be associated with him in them. We should not be shy to accept our own measure of mockery and disgrace and contempt in union to Christ. You know, if the world makes fun of us, wouldn't their good opinion be more of an insult given the things they do like, given the things they do approve of? Wouldn't it be better to be ridiculed with Christ than to be honored with these people? Let's see the glory of Christ in the middle of his disgrace. And let's resolutely, unashamedly, openly stand on his side. Amen.